welcome to the fourth episode in our series of commercial litigation update podcasts. My name is Anna Pertoldi and I'm the partner responsible for litigation know-how here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Presenting with me are Maura McIntosh, who's a professional support consultant in the litigation team, and Kevin Kilgore, who's a senior associate in the disputes team. In this edition, we will be looking at a variety of cases and developments since our last podcast, which was at the end of June. We've gone slightly longer than our usual two-month cycle, given the summer holiday period, even if it wasn't perhaps a a typical summer break this year. Maura is going to start us off with an update on the disclosure pilot, as well as some recently released proposals in relation to witness evidence. I'll then look at some recent cases on privilege, witness evidence and access to court documents. And Kevin will finish off with a couple of rather strict decisions on claim notices and a couple of cases on freezing injunctions. As usual, you will find links on the podcast page to our blog posts on the various cases and developments we're going to discuss. So uh, with that introduction, I'll hand over to Maura. Thanks, Anna. So I'll start with the disclosure pilot, which has been running in the business and property courts since the beginning of January 2019, and which has recently been extended to the end of next year. Lord Justice Flo, who chairs the disclosure working group, recently released an update, which included publication of the third interim report in the pilot based on feedback from a survey in autumn last year. Now, the report was prepared in February, but it's only now been published and it's fair to say that it's not exactly a glowing endorsement of the scheme. Uh, and although there are some positive aspects to the feedback, there are uh, significant negative points, including uh, reports of disputes over the list of issues for disclosure and the need to select disclosure models per issue, which users say is taking a lot of time. And that's our experience as well. Now, in terms of views on overall outcomes, rather damningly, 85% of respondents said the pilot had not saved costs, 71% that it had increased burdens on the court, and only 16% that it had made disclosure more accurate, though the other respondents were evenly split between those who said it had made disclosure less accurate and those who just thought it was too early to say. The update sets out a number of proposed amendments to the pilot rules that are being put to the Civil Procedure Rule Committee to try to address some of the niggles identified in feedback. So, for instance, to clarify that document preservation notices only need to be sent to former employees if there are reasonable grounds to believe they may have potentially disclosable documents that the litigating party doesn't already have. Uh, That's a point that isn't entirely clear on the current wording. But it doesn't seem any very fundamental changes are being proposed at this stage. Now, as I mentioned, the pilot has recently been extended to give a greater opportunity to see how it's working and and whether it achieves its aims, including, crucially, to save costs, which was a, a key aim of the pilot and doesn't appear to be the experience of most court users to date. And our own uh, experience reflects that as well. Now, it seems there'll be a further opportunity for feedback on the pilot, uh, including a survey of the judiciary to be conducted this autumn. So we'll have to see what the results look like, but I think it's good there'll be more time for feedback and reflection before any decisions are taken for the longer term future of disclosure. Moving on to witness evidence reform, which was discussed at the recent commercial court online 
seminar in early September. Um, attendees at the seminar received an advance copy of a new draft practice direction and appendix to govern trial witness statements in the, in the business and property courts. The drafts will in due course be considered by the business and property courts board and the CPRC, so they're not guaranteed to come into force in this form. The drafts are intended to implement the recommendations of the Witness Evidence Working Group published in December last year, which included a recommendation that an authoritative statement of best practice should be prepared. And I should perhaps declare an interest at this point as I was part of the Working Group for implementation, uh, though I wasn't part of the main Witness Evidence Working Group. Now, the drafts aim to improve witness evidence by reducing the potential for a witness's recollections to be influenced by the process of taking the statement itself. Uh, and they also uh, aim to refocus witness statements on the areas where witness evidence is really needed. So rather than setting out detailed recitation of and, and commentary on the documents, as is often the case at the moment, uh, much to the apparent frustration of judges, they would really focus on the, on the point where the witness evidence is essential. Now, there are two aspects of the drafts that I want to mention, as I think they're the most significant. They represent the, the greatest change, I think, from, from current practice, really. First, um, there's a new proposed requirement that for important disputed matters of fact, the statement should, if practicable, state how well the witness recalls the matter and indicate the extent to which that recollection has been affected by considering documents. Now, I think this could give rise to obvious practical challenges for witnesses. It's, it's not always easy to describe how well you recall something or, or, or what might have influenced that recollection. But the proposal is limited to important disputed matters of fact and also to what's practicable. And it's, it's easy to see the aim behind it. So hopefully it will prove workable in practice. The second aspect, I think, is more controversial. And I'm not giving away any secrets if I say the working group was divided on it. Um, that, that was referred to in the commercial court seminar as well. And this is a new requirement to identify what documents, if any, the witness has referred to or been referred to for the purpose of providing the statement. So not just documents the witness has identified as actually influencing their recollection, but essentially all documents the witness has seen. Now, some members of the working group believe this will give important information to help the judge assess the weight to be attached to the witness's evidence, but some think it goes too far. And, and certainly um, in, in large complex commercial cases where the relevant events may have taken place some years before the witnesses giving their their statement. Uh, it, I think it's only fair to the witness to take them through the contemporaneous documents to put them back in the relevant context before expecting them to have a really clear recollection of the surrounding circumstances. And the main concern with the proposal is that if there's a long list of, of documents that the witness has seen, then a, a judge might draw adverse inferences as to the quality of the witness's evidence where that may not be justified. And there are also obvious difficulties for the witness who is also the client, uh, as they will have had to review documents in the course of giving instructions. And so um, you would think they'll have a very long list of documents that they, they've seen. Um, it also seems the requirements intended to include privileged documents as well, though at the moment it's not entirely clear in what detail they would have to be listed. So you can see it's, it's potentially a big shift in practice uh, and we'll have to wait to see whether it finds favour with the Business and Property Courts Board and the CPRC.
Thanks, Maura. Moving on to some case law then. I'm going to start with a recent decision on privilege, which is a decision of the Commercial Court in the PGSC Tatneft case. The question for the court in this particular decision was whether communications with the claimant's Russian in-house lawyers were protected by legal advice privilege. Both parties accepted that the question was one of English law, since the English courts treat privilege as a question for the law of the forum, even if the claim before the court is governed by another law, so here Russian law, and regardless of what law the advice relates to. Both parties also accepted that, as has long been established, English law recognises privilege in advice from foreign lawyers, as well as English solicitors and barristers. But the question was whether to qualify for English law privilege, the foreign lawyers have to meet some particular standard of qualification or professional regulation equivalent to that of an English solicitor or barrister. The context here was that the in-house lawyers were not members of any Russian bar association and in fact couldn't be because in Russia, as in many other jurisdictions, including a number of European jurisdictions, in-house lawyers cannot maintain bar membership. The judge found that the communications in this case were privileged and there was no need for the court to inquire into the applicable systems of regulation or professional standards under Russian law. In the judge's view, such a requirement would lead to uncertainty and would raise issues of comity if the court had to express views on the qualifications and regulation of foreign lawyers. It would also be unfair, particularly as it would exclude large numbers of lawyers from the protection of privilege under English law. In the context of this case, all Russian in-house lawyers and a large proportion of other lawyers working in Russia, since apparently many other categories of Russian law are not formally admitted to the status of advocate and don't become members of any bar association. My second case is Manning and Napier against Tesco, a decision in the shareholder litigation against Tesco, which I understand settled since this decision was handed down. The point I want to cover is on witness evidence and specifically the need to obtain relief from sanctions if a party wants to serve supplemental witness statements after the deadline for exchange of witness evidence has passed. In this case, there was to be a split trial and it seems there was some confusion as to which issues would be covered in which trial, which of course holds lessons in itself. So the claimants only belatedly appreciated that issues of reliance and causation relating to their lost profits claim were to be dealt with in the first trial and they sought to serve supplemental witness statements addressing those issues long after the deadline for exchange of witness evidence had expired. Initially, the claimants argued that they didn't need relief from sanctions to be able to serve the statements late, that they just needed a retrospective extension of time. But ultimately, they accepted that the court will treat a retrospective application to extend time as akin to an application for relief from sanctions, so that the same rigorous approach will apply. So that is the three-stage test established in the Denton case whether the breach is serious or significant, whether there's a good reason for it, and whether in all the circumstances the application should be granted, 
bearing in mind the need for litigation to be conducted efficiently and at proportionate cost and the need to enforce compliance with rules, practice directions and orders. In this case, the court considered the breach to be serious and significant and while it said the error was readily understandable, it didn't amount to a good reason for the breach. Overall, and despite the court's reluctance to make an order which could deprive the claimants of the chance to obtain full recovery, the court held that the application for relief from sanctions should be refused, and therefore the supplemental evidence not admitted, unless the claimants provided sufficient disclosure in support of the claim within two weeks, and the resulting extra work for Tesco was fairly manageable, bearing in mind the need to prepare for trial. So, as I said, the case ultimately settled, and I don't know on what terms or whether the dynamics of the settlement were affected by this issue, but it's a reminder not only to make sure, if there's a split trial, that it's absolutely clear which issues are being dealt with when, uh, but not to assume you'll be able to file supplemental witness evidence late in the day if there are issues you should have dealt with sooner. The last case I want to mention is the Dring litigation on public access to court documents. The main litigation in this case settled after trial and before judgment, and an asbestos victim support groups forum has been seeking access to trial documents, mainly for use in other asbestos claims. The case has already gone all the way to the Supreme Court, which gave guidance on how a court should approach an application for non-party access to documents referred to in open court and remitted the case to the High Court to determine how the principles should be applied on the facts. The Supreme Court held that all courts have an inherent jurisdiction to order disclosure in accordance with the principles of open justice. So essentially to enable public scrutiny of the decision-making process, which means the public have to be able to understand why decisions are taken. It seems though that the, the guidance wasn't sufficiently clear because there was some debate about the effect of the Supreme Court's decision. The High Court in this case held that it was not enough to show that access to documents would be in accordance with the open justice principle. It also had to be shown that such access would advance that principle. And on the facts here, the forum already had what it needed to understand the arguments at trial. So open justice didn't require further documents to be provided and the application was refused. Uh, but um, even after four judgments in this case, that may not be the final word. The forum is seeking permission to appeal, so the case may go still further. If the High Court has correctly interpreted the Supreme Court's decision, then it seems the focus in future applications for public access to court documents will be on what's required to understand what's taking place before the court. Applicants may not be able to get hold of further documents they might want for some other purpose. So I'll hand over now to Kevin to look at claim notices and freezing injunctions. Thanks, Anna. The first case I want to look at is Towergate Financial and Hopkinson. The High Court in that case found that a claimant could not pursue an indemnity claim under an SPA because it had not notified the defendants of its claim as soon as possible, as it was required to do under the contract. 
The wording of the clause said that notification had to be given as soon as possible and in any event prior to the seventh anniversary of the signing of the SPA. The buyer issued their claim notice just shortly before the seventh anniversary and the question was, was that sufficient? The decision really turned on whether the requirement to give notice as soon as possible was a separate requirement or whether the only real requirement was to be within the seven-year limit. The court had no real hesitation in finding that on the facts, notice was not given as soon as possible. So if there was a separate requirement, then there hadn't been proper notice. In construing the clause, the court found that it contained two separate conditions. Notice had to be given on or before the seventh anniversary and, separately, as soon as possible. The court distinguished a case from 2007, AIG and Farday, in which a clause in an insurance contract required notification to be made as soon as reasonably practicable and within 30 days. That was uh, found to contain a single condition, i.e. notice within 30 days. A key difference between the cases was that a party might think notification within 30 days was as soon as reasonably practicable, given the short time period. But that couldn't be said of the clause in the Towergate case, because the ultimate long-stop date was seven years. So, of course, each case is going to turn on its own facts. But the Towergate decision shows that if a clause requires notice to be given as soon as possible and within a specified time period... You shouldn't assume you'll be in time so long as the stated period hasn't expired. The court could find that notice really did have to be given as soon as possible as a separate condition of notice. The second case I want to talk about is Dodica and United Luck Group. This is another case in which the court found that a claim notice was invalid. But this time, not because it was too late, but because it failed to specify with sufficient detail the matters giving rise to the claim. I won't go into the facts, they're fairly detailed, but a really striking feature of the case is that the court found that the claim notice was invalid and that the buyer couldn't pursue its claim, even though the seller was in fact already aware of the matters which gave rise to the claim. The decision shows the court's tendency towards strict enforcement of claim notice clauses. The obvious lesson is it's generally better to provide too much rather than too little detail in your claim notice. And that means allowing sufficient time for a full notice of the claim to be drafted. If you leave the preparation of the notice until the very end of the claim limitation period in the contract, you may find you end up in difficulties. Um, Finally, I wanted to touch on a couple of freezing injunction cases. The first is Orange Grape Spirit and Nueva, in which the Court of Appeal considered what falls within the standard exception within a freezing order, for which allows expenditure in the ordinary and proper course of business. And in particular, whether pursuing a fledgling business would fall within that exception. The Court of Appeal said, no, it doesn't. In the absence of an established pattern of trading, expenditure pursuing a new business venture is unlikely to fall within that exception. The Court does, however, have a discretion to sanction expenditure, even if it falls outside the ordinary and proper course exception on a case-by-case basis. And that's what the course of appeal did in this case. So, whereas at first instance the judge had refused to permit the defendant's expenditure because the business was speculative and so could well fail and leave the claimant with no assets against which to enforce a judgment, the Court of Appeal took a different view. Lord Justice Newey explained that even in cases where a freezing injunction is appropriate, the court won't restrain all conduct 
which could prejudice a defendant's ability to satisfy a judgment. Freezing an order is not intended to give security, but rather to prevent improper or unjustified disposals of assets. The decision shows that to restrict expenditure on business activities, it's not enough simply to show that the business venture is speculative or that there are question marks about its prospects. Permission for that expenditure should only be refused where it appears that the business activity or the business itself has no reasonable prospect of success or the defendant is not acting in good faith and is is seeking through that activity to put his assets beyond reach. And the last freezing injunction case I wanted to mention briefly is GML International and Harfield. This was a case concerning a post-judgment freezing order, and it's of interest because the court based its finding that there was a risk of the judgment debtor dissipating his assets substantially on the nature of his defence in the underlying proceedings and the fact that he'd given evidence at trial that was entirely unreliable. So although a finding of dishonesty may not always be enough by itself to establish a risk of dissipation, in some circumstances the court may find that a party's conduct during the proceedings is so egregious that it will be prepared to find a risk of dissipation, even without clear evidence that the defendant has actually taken steps to dispose of his assets. Thank you, Kevin. So that's the end of today's podcast. We'll be back with another edition in a couple of months. Thank you to Laura and to Kevin and to all of you for listening.